How many of you guys have seen this book before? Hmm? You've seen it before? Or a book that looks like this? No? Well, these books are in our house, boo. We've been reading some of the ones, but there, there were some newer ones we've been reading. And for those of you who can't see it, it's the Bible story book. Well, years ago, I'm going to tell you a story about years ago when I first saw a book like this. It, it wasn't necessarily this particular book, but it had this same title, The Bible Story by Arthur Maxwell. Because years ago, I lived on a cattle ranch, and on that cattle ranch there was my whole family, my mom, my dad, and my two brothers. And periodically, my grandfather and my grandma would come out there. And one day, my grandpa left something for us, and my mom wouldn't tell us what it was until that night. And guess what it was? It was a stack of books like this. It was a little bit taller than this. And so my mom began reading these books to us in the evening. And there are books in there. If you look in here, there's all kinds of pictures <clears throat> of stories of wars and David as well and Joshua and the lands that he conquered. There's all these stories in here. And here's Samson pulling down the pillars. All these different stories. There's stories about Jesus. And as I began to listen to the stories each night, I began to think to myself, I noticed a lot of things happen in those stories, but one of the things that happened the most was those people prayed to God, and God answered their prayer. Well, some nights after my mom had closed the storybook and put it down, my dad would come home after he'd worked all day, and he went to the bar, and he would drink alcohol. And he'd come home, and he'd be very angry. And we had just heard these stories in here about how God had answered prayer, and so I, would be pre I started praying for my dad. I started praying, God, I want you to help him stop drinking. And I was a little boy at the time. I want him to play soccer with me. And I want him to quit smoking if you'll help him do that. So uh, during that, I think it was about a year or two, my mom was reading these to us. Guess what I saw happen? My, my dad quit, smoke, quit drinking. Then a little while later, him and I were out in the front yard. I can still picture it in my mind. I was the goalie, and he was kicking the ball at me. We were playing soccer together. But the last problem was he kept smoking. I remember sometimes he'd be coughing and stuff because of that, and I, I worried about him as a kid. And so I started going to church with my, my grandma. And they went to church on Sunday at the time, but my grandpa went on Saturday. And my grandpa would invite us to church on Saturday. I'd go to church on Sunday with my grandma. And they had a prayer group there. And I said to the group, could you please pray for my daddy? I want him to quit smoking. He's quit drinking. He's been spending time with us. But could you help him quit smoking? Well, I went to church there for quite a while. And I kept bringing that up. Every week they'd say, do you have a prayer request? And I'd say, yeah. Can you help my daddy to quit smoking? Well, for after a while, guess what happened? My daddy quit smoking. So I came to that class and I told them, my dad quit smoking, my dad quit smoking. And they were all happy and we praised God together. And as I look back, I think of, you know, that, that was probably much a, a really bright period in my childhood. It, it got darker after that because my dad started smoking again later. He started drinking again. He quit spending time with us for a while there. And we got kind of angry at, uh, thing, at God for a while. And some of us quit going to church. But I still remember years later, these books and I still remember my grandfather's love and my mom's attempt to point us to God. And I remember two lessons. Guess what they were? <clears throat> God answers prayer and Jesus loves me, even if things are going bad. So no matter what happens in your life, I want you to remember those two lessons. God answers prayer and Jesus loves you. Because later on, I remember I learned about Jesus' love and that's why I'm here today. 
And that's why you're here today, too. So I'm going to pray for you that whatever happens in your home and your family and school and all of that, that God will help you remember he answers those prayers and he loves you no matter what's going on in your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for each young person here. Thank you for how you love them, even more than we love them, Lord, but your heart aches for them to be in your kingdom with them. And so we place them in your hands. We pray, Lord, that no matter what happens in the future, even as they leave the church today and go face different things in life, that they will remember that you love them and that you answer their prayers, Lord, because you love them. Bless each one here and their families represented, and all the families that we have here in the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, here's your sheet. And once again, this answer is going to be up on the screen. And some of you are getting pretty close to getting a prize in my office. Let's have an added word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your love for us that you say in your words, especially in the book of Ephesians, that there is a heavenly family that we can be a part of. In Romans chapter 8, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the children of God. We want to be your children here this morning. We ask you to lead us and guide us with the Holy Spirit. We ask you to help us to see ourselves, especially in these texts we look at this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, years after my mother read some of those Bible stories to me, my mom and dad got a divorce. And no matter how much I seemed to pray at the time, it didn't seem to be working. And maybe some of you have been through some of these types of relationships. Maybe some of you have, have not seen necessarily the, the biblical ideal work out in every situation. Sin has gotten in the way. So as I share this message this morning, I'm t- trying to take into account various relationships that may be going on in the church right now where the ideal didn't necessarily take place. But I'm still going to lift up the ideal to you. I'm still going to say this is what God's original plan was and this is what he would really love to see happen. But the question is, what steps will we have to take to make that happen? And so as I was looking at the the issue of divorce and monogamy, monogamy basically, uh, spouse, you have one spouse for for life. And I was was reading through a book from my doctoral research class I came across a statistic that mentioned, and it wasn't from this one, it was from a different book, that those who are engaged in a monogamous relationship, especially you know, one spouse, right? Not one spouse and another than another. Just basically they're focused on this one spouse, that they ended up having more satisfaction in life. Contentment was the word that kept coming up. And so this week I was doing some more research on it, and I came across this ABC News poll. And I'm not saying they're really the best pollsters in the world. You know that they kind of doctor it at times. But if they were going to doctor anything away from the truth, it would have been this, but they couldn't do it. They surveyed 1,500 individuals randomly. They called them around the United States, and they asked them all kinds of questions about their relationship with their spouse, and they concluded this in the study. The vast majority of Americans are monogamous and happy about it. Now, that's out of 1,500. You say, well, wait a minute, 50% divorce rate? Okay. The concept of monogamy, the concept of having a spouse rather than multiple. And they expressed in this study satisfaction with their intimacy and emotional commitment. They were committed. The ones who were in this type of relationship felt satisfied and committed to the other person. Yet, as I mentioned before, society as a whole points us to other alternatives, relationships that maybe are not according to this idea of monogamy, relationships that in their minds are more natural. And if you look at the scientific method, you know what I'm talking about. Evolution has this idea of somehow uh, survival of the fittest, and you would have multiple partners in that relationship. A ram can service 30 
30 sheep, right? I got a ram this week. It can, you know, basically multiple partners. Or you live together and, and basically aren't married, aren't having that commitment to the Lord. So as I looked at these types of studies, and I thought, well, wait a minute, there's some incongruency here. Whereas they're saying on paper that they are committed to a person, yet I see things in society that are saying just the opposite. That are saying not just having one person. And it could be that it's, it's of all kinds of different varieties. And so as I read that article, I thought, well, the experience of many Americans is not monogamy. It's evidenced by divorce. It's evidenced by other matters. And the real question came back to me, what is the cause of all this? Because one blogger said, basically, it's a religious nature. He was researching college young men who had multiple individuals in their lives. And he said it's because this religious institution has basically, and this is a secular individual writing, has basically taken a back seat. I think he was onto something. Because as I look at this matter, and you all know when you've been in a deep relationship with somebody, it's a matter of the soul. It's more than just a relationship. It's, it becomes, in essence, that person becomes part of who you are. It's a deep relationship that could affect you spiritually. I think the real crux of the matter is that there is, yes, a religious cause, but there's also something that's out there all over the place. Discontentment. You say, well, that may not be it, but listen to this quotation. Discontentment is to pull off the wheels of the soul. It pulls off the wheels of the soul. This is a book by a doctor who had a vibrant practice in the city. He was rushing from one appointment to the next, and he was accumulating wealth and, and prestige, and eventually he had people that were interested in him besides his wife, and he basically decided, I'm setting all that aside. I'm going to go practice in the country, and I'm going to slow things down so that my margin, my, my ability between appointments and, and my time to think is there. And he concluded that we are overloaded and discontent. We need to slow down, and he as a Christian author says, and be the people that God wants us to be. That may be some of you are single, some of you are married, some of you have been through uh, a widow type experience or a widower experience. And some of you may have been through divorce, but you can still be the people that God wants you to be. He can still lead you through whatever experience and background you have to be those people. And I believe this guy was onto something. That if we would learn to have godliness and contentment, we would have great gain. Because you know, as you look around, Society wants you to think that the, the, the grass is greener somewhere else. That that relationship you have is not really what you could have. And so you could trade in for another model. But that's not what God has in mind. God has in mind the family structure. This whole service is focused on the family. A family structure that shows us the most continual source of contentment that we can find in life. And that's a family looking to God. And he offered that to humanity at creation. He says in Genesis chapter 2, this is God himself. He's the officiant of this first marriage. There's no human preacher up there officiating at that marriage. God is officiating at that marriage. And it's written down so the Christian communities from that point on can see this is what it truly means to have oneness in this institution of marriage he says, therefore, God says, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one 
flesh. This is that oneness at creation that God instituted. Not just oneness with himself as far as keeping the Sabbath, but also oneness in human relationships. And as we look at the story of creation, we've looked at it more recently. At creation, there were several things that we've looked at that have been established. The weekly cycle, which is still in existence, was established, though many don't acknowledge the the Sabbath. We do acknowledge the Sabbath. It's one of those cornerstones of creation. It's something that we cherish if we truly experience it each week, if we see it as a day to be recreated by God, regrounded in the simplicity. The guy who wrote the book Margin really should have looked at the idea of the Sabbath because every week we need this time with God. Not just every day, but this special time with God when the God of the universe will set aside and he will allow us to enter into his Basically, look in Ephesians, we're worshiping not just as a church family, but with our heavenly family today. Because the whole universe worships on the Sabbath. He also showed us everything we needed for life. He shows what the plants need, what we would need to to continue on in life, this tree of life. And then we also find established where perfect relationships, that's where the family is established. So if you notice at creation, these two were established. And these two are what we find being attacked more than anything today. He gives us the world to care for. We know there's a lot of popularity regarding that. Take care of the world, environmental concerns. But what about these other two concerns? Wouldn't it be wonderful if these ideals were followed in every relationship? If the family would come together and worship? The family would come together and recognize they're part of a heavenly family every Sabbath. If they would, when they would come in and go out every day of the week, they would be lifting up the Lord. We know these are ideals. It doesn't always happen necessarily that way. But wouldn't it be wonderful if it did? I know the pain of broken relationships. I mean, as a little, I mean, here I am, 30 years later, still dealing with wounds. Some of you are still dealing with wounds of relationships that maybe didn't, didn't seem to be following this. Does that mean we quit believing in God? Does that mean we, we say, well, where were you at and all of that? And there, you weren't there, so I'm going to walk away from you? No, in fact, we find Adam and Eve did do that. And what did God do after they walked away from him? They heard the voice of the Lord, Yahweh, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He comes to them, even though the relationship with each other has been broken, even though they've severed it with him. In essence, they, they, they have every level of relationship was broken when sin came into the world. And so here we are on this side of that equation. Can the Lord still speak life and meaning into our relationships today? Can you imagine being the first couple? You're bickering over the, over the fruit, you know, the snake gave me. Okay, you know, you've read it. And, and yet... And you're trying to cover, your, you're starting to feel cold, and so you're covering yourself with those fig leaves, which later on Jesus you know, talks about the fig tree and judgment of Jerusalem. It, it, it's, still, it's always a problem. Still trying to cover themselves. Where did that feeling of coldness come from? Where did that feeling of shame come from? Those are all instruments of the kingdom of darkness. And so they began to have that kingdom come upon them. They began to have relationships with each other severed, relationship with God severed, and yet this very verse shows us that God wants to speak life and creation into each one of our relationships.
If a marriage is on the rocks, God can still speak into that situation. If a divorce has taken place, God can still bring healing and hope to those people, even to the point where they could even forgive one another. If you've been the child in that situation, God could somehow have you look back and see, you know, I was your father all along the way. If you're single and things haven't worked out necessarily the way you thought because of this ideal, just trust that the Lord is still there speaking in your situation. Doesn't matter what your relationship is, God can still speak into it because here he is speaking into this very relationship. And so that original family, they had this, before the fall, had this oneness. And even after the fall, they still tried to go back to that oneness. They still tried to remember the Sabbath, at least for a time. They still tried to have a relationship. Because you read in Genesis chapter 4, Adam knew Eve and they conceived, she conceived and bore a son and she names him Cain. She's hoping that this would be the Messiah. You, you read the name Cain, it's special. She saw him as a gift from the Lord. And in Jewish thinking, at least, I, I don't like the word Jewish, but basically in the faith of the Old Testament, in, the, in that thinking, in the Hebrew way of thinking, the family was not complete as much as people want to argue with me about this, I haven't heard much yet, but our society, just like in the 1930s, secularism began to take over parts of Europe, and basically, as we start seeing less and less children being born, we pursued our American dream. We basically allowed children and everything to take a back burner while we pursued our careers. I hate to say it, guys, but in the Hebrew way of thinking, the family is not complete until they're at least three, or four. So a church without children or a family without children, uh, it, it's, not a cur it's not saying it's something bad. It's just saying that God's ideal would be that the family would eventually develop to the point where they would have children. And if something got in the way, I know family and even, my, even individuals on a closer range than that, that for a while couldn't even have children. But that was still his ideal, that the relationship would progress until they would become more than two. God said in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So whatever the image is going to be down there in verse 27, it's somehow the family is reflecting God. That's the goal. So whether, whether this is necessarily your experience, this is, this is what God had in mind at the beginning. He had in mind families Homes that would reflect his image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of heavens, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth. This was the ideal. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And so this is, these are two. The two would become one. And yet something would happen in verse 28. God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply. That's why I said you're looking at multiplication there. Replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens. This isn't necessarily dictatorship dominion. You find this idea of ruling. What would happen if you had a wonderful ruler? You take some elements of that in the Israelite society. For instance, Solomon for a time ruled well. Not completely, but we know he endeavored to. Imperfectly ruling well. Because the only real ruler is Jesus. But we would be given this world. We would multiply. We would replenish the earth. We would fill it. 
and we would then have that dominion. It mentions that dominion again. And so the birth of a child was part of this image. Now, isn't that why children, in, in a way, refresh us at times? In some way or another, it's not saying that, let's say, say I, for a while there, I was single. Does that mean that God wasn't in my home? Yeah, he was in my home. He was guiding my home. He can guide your home whether you're single, whether you've got a family, whatever the situation is. But this is the ideal. This is the idea that somehow the family would eventually expand. And the birth of a child was seen as being part of the image of God. And that idea of family continues even after the fall. For instance, in the days of Noah, I know some people have told me, you know what, we shouldn't be having children anymore because we're living in the days of Noah. Okay, guys, you don't know your Bible then. Because what did Noah have in his days? Children. Okay? And I remember one well-meaning individual told me, uh, it, was a, it was a bookmobile, it wasn't around here, where they'd bring all these books in, and it was like a gathering of churches from all over the area. And as a pastor, there I was. I just had another child. It was my third. And this individual, well, I don't, know, I don't think they were well-meaning, but I, I want to give them the motive, the benefit of the doubt that maybe they were well-meaning. They came up to me, and, oh, these are your children? Yeah, those are my three children. And the little baby girl, you know, we were rocking her. And just under the breath, he walks away, says, world's overpopulated anyway. Jesus is coming soon. You shouldn't be having children. Whoa. Are you kidding me? Sure glad I wasn't in my pre-Christian days. I would have said, grab him by the neck and pull him outside and go, wham. <laughs> what are you saying? We just had this child. We just dedicated this child to the church. And you're slapping me with words? But my human nature didn't take over that time. I just said to myself, well, if Noah could have children, then so can I, you know? And what would happen if we, none of us had children anyway? We'd be like the, the, well, I guess we'd be like the church in North America, wouldn't we? Average age of 52 with no children in some of the churches. The very churches I was pastoring there. And so I don't believe that. I think we should have children now. In fact, you know, if you want to take my radical church growth strategy, what it would be? Never shared it before. Right off the press. You all ought to, those of you who have the physical ability to do it, you ought to adopt. You'd fill this church in just one year. And those of you who could have children, it'd take nine months, but we would, you know what I'm saying. So, don't give me that excuse, okay? Because I believe that the ones who are going to defend us at the city gate to our enemies at the end of time are going to be the young people. Because if the Lord chooses to delay, which we know he will because, according to Matthew, he delays so he can save more people, then we had better have a plan to raise up missionaries in our place. And the only ones I can think of that are the most susceptible to Influence of Jesus are the children because some of us for years have attended church and for whatever reason, it hasn't gotten done yet. So I think we need to start with the young people. Some people tell me that maybe we should do all these things in the community. We should do things in the community, guys, but we really should reach the young generations because I can tell you right now, some of those who are further along, the Lord's going to reach through them and pluck them like a fire from the, a brand from the fire. But you know what? They're going to be the young people that are coming along that if we do nothing for them, they're going to be in the same situation and so I believe we, have a, we should be like, no, we should be able to preach that message. We should, he had a family. He, he basically got his whole family in, and of course I know he got drunk later, and I, know, and I know one of his children was a little bit of a problem. But that it's not given excuse to not have children now. And so the dedication of the children brought about the continuation of the worship of God. Even in Egypt they had children. Those are the ones who eventually 
Though the ones who came out of Egypt didn't go into the promised land, who went into the promised land? It was the children. And the monarchy, who took over eventually and extended, continued to extend the worship of God, it was the ones who were raised up. The time of Christ, same thing. We wouldn't even got to the time of Christ if they didn't have any children. So in the last days, we're told, especially in Psalm 110, that the dew will arise before the Messiah comes to rule. And it's mentioning the children. Where there's no dew, there's a curse. Do we have dew? Do we have that beautiful, refreshing rain that would come in the morning in, in the agrarian society of the ancient Near East and would refresh those plants? It would cause a harvest eventually to grow. Do we have that? Because when there was no dew, when there was no rain, Basically, the sky was like bronze. They said, basically, God has cursed us. Look at Joel chapter 2. And so as we look at this idea, uh, of course I'm pro-family. <laughs> I've got four kids, right? He's speaking to his own choir right here. And, I'm not, and I see the love of Jesus through those children. I can tell you right now, I have seen Jesus through my children a lot more, a lot more than, than any other medium that God has provided along the way. The Bible's there. It's, it's bolstered. But can you imagine... The, the experience where Jesus says you'll be like a little child and now your little girl comes up to you and basically looks you in the eye and tells you that she loves you. You just read the text and now you've seen the, the enacted parable. There's something about that. So if I'm a little passionate, forgive me. And in Psalm 127, it says that the young people would eventually rally and defend their father at the city gate. He was to have his quiver full. He was to have uh, as many as, not as many as he could, but basically as many as he could support because guess what's going to happen? There will come a point when that father has to put down the bow and the sword, and guess who's going to defend him? This isn't talking about necessarily defend him in court. As I researched that text in Psalm 127, it was talking about his enemies that would come to contend with him and fight with him. He could no longer take it up, but his boys and his, his girls, they would take it up and fight for him, especially his boys. So I believe we, we need that. We need the young people to rise up and to take over from where we are laying down the sword. Because I can tell you, the church in, in Revelation 14, it describes, blessed are those who die in the Lord henceforth, for the reward will follow them. It's the little ones that you've that you, and the ones who've come behind you that will be your reward. And in the Israelite culture, the children were seen as an essential part of the family. Even the little girls, we think, oh, they saw everybody, all the females as property. That was not the case. If, if you have that erroneous belief, I suggest you look it up and research it because I've been spending a lot of time on this in part of my doctoral research. And I can tell you right now, the ladies had a role in that society. And those girls, the fondness that the fathers had for their daughters was not just, oh, I'm going to exchange her someday for some dowry. It was, I'm hoping this girl will become a child of God and shine like Esther. And they have a saying, basically, the family would then establish a strong clan. The clan would then establish a strong nation. A nation would then take the message of the Messiah to the world. And so the family was an integral part of that. And it was also prophesied that the family would be restored through the Elijah message. And if we believe we have an Elijah message, then we ought to be seeing a bunch of families being restored. Start with our own work our way out. And young people, here's your scripture for your FBI sheet, your faithful Bible investigator sheet. Malachi chapter 4, the whole chapter. 
Those of you who have your Bibles, please turn there. It's a pretty short chapter. It won't take very long. Six verses. Malachi 4, verses 1 through 6. This is talking about the day of the Lord. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who wickedly do wickedly will be stubble. That's the, that's the result. They're eventually going to walk themselves into oblivion. And God says in verse 1, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch, but to you who fear my name, verse 2, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Malachi 4, verse 3, You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord. Eventually it gets to the point where those who walk to oblivion are no more. Verse 4, what are we to do? Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. What does this Elijah message do for the families? It it restores those relationships. It can do that. My father and I have the best relationship now that we've ever had. Even though he chose to drink and smoke and carry on that direction for part of his life, he became a Christian. That's the Elijah message. It's Jesus. Jesus changes things. And so when he looks at his calendar and says, I've got vacation days, I'm like, hold on, Dad, I don't have, you know, I got a, I got a schedule too. He's, he's anxious to see his boy. That's what the Elijah message does for families. It can take and it can bring victory. It can bring restoration. It can bring the beginning of a relationship that you never even had before. It can restore hearts if we let it. And so as I read that message there, I'm thinking, well, isn't that what we have to deliver? Because in Malachi, he sees a falling away from the law of Moses and the Sabbath. We see that today, don't we? He sees rebellion entering homes because somehow a father no longer cares for his son and the son no longer respects and cares for his father. And yet, he says, if we remember, then these things can be restored. That's talking to our day, isn't it? Because we're right before the ashes in those passages. I can tell you that. Right before the awful day of the Lord when when basically the world rushes into oblivion and wants to destroy even God himself and God has to defend himself and his family with that fire that comes down. We're right there on the cusp of that. And so that's why I believe that this is talking about even our day where, where the law is forgotten, even the rebellion that's going on in homes these days. Malachi links these conditions to the Sabbath and he makes it very clear that's paramount. But the other institution is not forgotten in this text. The family is also pointed out in this text. And in the New Testament, we know John began the Elijah ministry that he's talking about here. Remember John the Baptist? He comes up to a soldier and says to the soldier, basically, quit abusing people. Now, if that soldier was baptized and he truly believed that God had changed his heart, he's going to go home and do what? God's going to empower him to quit abusing people. Can you imagine the change that would take place in his family if that took root in his life? 
Now all of a sudden, he's not just roughing up his boy anymore or, or going out and his boy seeing him pull a sword and just kill somebody. His boy sees him check the sword, talk to the individual, de-escalate his situation. And now all of a sudden, the son begins to wonder, what change has happened in my dad's heart? That began in, during the time of, Eli, of John the Baptist. Imagine the tax collector who's going about watching his back, watching out because someone might stab him in the back because he stabbed many people financially in the back. And now all of a sudden he walks away from John's baptism and something has changed in his heart. He goes home and he begins to restore his wife. Says, what are you doing? And he begins to go through the ledger and to make things right with all these people. Repaying them many times over. You don't have to look very far. The story of Zacchaeus is all there is to look for. He did exactly that when Jesus got a hold of him. And so imagine that. The poor people who felt like they were totally downcast and out, now all of a sudden they're told, you're of eternal value to God. Imagine that. Were, a family, were the families affected by these changes in John's ministry? Yes, they were. In fact, that's why Jesus mentioned there was no one greater than John, and yet he talks about those who were least in the kingdom would be greater than John. But what about the viper families? Were they changed? It's the viper families in the text of John and his ministry that weren't changed. The ones who would, would watch their daddies go to the crucifixion of Jesus and sneer at Jesus. That's a sad story, isn't it? And maybe some of them later on would pull the book of Isaiah out of the scroll and they'd say, why did, we, why did my dad do this? I hope that would take place. Especially Caiaphas' dad, uh, son. I hope that would take place. But the ones who did not receive the ministry of John and Jesus basically became the murderers of Jesus. And eventually some of their own children would have to eat excrement and things in this fall of Jerusalem. That's a sad story. And so Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Malachi. John did, but Jesus especially. Can you imagine the man whose son was demon-possessed and was throwing, getting thrown in the fire and all of that? Now that's describing cooking fire maybe, right? Uh, you're preparing a meal and all of a sudden this, this demon gets a hold of your boy and tries throwing him in this, in this fire. You're always on edge. And then Jesus, disciples come and they can't heal him and you're kind of just crying out, Lord, help my unbelief. And the Lord heals your demon-possessed son. And now picture them sitting there by the cooking fire, father and son. You can fill in the blank, right? Use your imagination. Or the prominent Israelite who Jesus, his message takes root. And Jesus now takes their sorrow, his little girl, and raises her up and turns it into this beautiful celebration of life. That's what Jesus did. He restored families. He restored us to the Father as well. And he said Elijah would come again. That's talking about us. And so to the families who, have, who came to have their children blessed, what did Jesus say to them? He was the fulfillment of Malachi there as well. He were being turned away by the disciples. And what did Jesus do? Forbid them not. Let them come. That's where we get to our real text for today, Matthew 18. In that hour, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is greatest? Who's the elder really amongst us? Who's really the strongest? You know, there was a progression in the growth of a child. Eventually, they become a, a strong man, maybe one of the mighty men in the army. Who's, one, who's that? And what does Jesus say? In the kingdom of heaven, who's, who's the strongest? Who's the, who's the elder? Who's really the, the one in authority? And he calls a little child to him, sets him in the midst, it's a boy, and says, 
It could be just as easy a girl. I say to you, except you turn, link to repentance, and become as a little child, you shall no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. They're bickering and all this about position. And he says, this is the greatest, the little child. Is the child seen bickering? Oh, probably over some things in life, you know, they do that. But over the idea of I'm greater, I'm better than you, Jesus? I mean, who would be greatest in the kingdom anyway? Jesus, right? So to ask that kind of question is not even appropriate. And so he pulls the child there and says, whoever shall humble himself, this is how we become the little children that, that Uriel led us in the song about, is we have to humble ourselves as a little child and then we will be considered greatest in the kingdom. We will be considered the elder in the kingdom. And how do we do that? He said, if you receive a little child in my name, you receive me. The key is receiving Jesus. This is an enacted parable. This is him taking a life experience right in front of them and saying, look, here's my lesson for you. Where do we see that at the most? We see it at the cross. Believe in me. Receive me. I don't look like much. I may look like the lowest of lowest. I may look like the, shame, the one who's been shamed the most. I may be laying, sitting here and be the lowest of estimation in your sight. But like he said to the thief, I'm telling you something. When I don't look like much, I'm giving you the promise you'll be with me in paradise. And that's the foundation of our message of the three angels, isn't it? The everlasting gospel, this Jesus here who died for us, who, who bore our sins to the cross, who tells us to believe me, receive me. And in Genesis chapter 2, we find the same idea of the cross is way before the cross. Remember how he took and he made Adam fall asleep and he takes out of his side what would become his bride. A little, little rhyme there. Out of his side came his bride and they became one, basically out of one flesh became two. And what do we find happening at the cross? Out of Jesus as they pierce his side, water and blood flow out. And according to John, one of Jesus' closest friends, you read 1 John, basically out of that comes us as believers. We look to the cross. We look to Jesus. We look what he did for us. It's the same story. In Romans chapter 8, it says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the children or the sons of God. So the cross upholds the family. But Jesus said the children were greatest. Why? It's pretty simple. He became a child. That is mind-boggling. That the creator of the universe would become a child. To save us. And so the child silenced their ambitions for greatness as disciples. The child was seen by Jesus as the greatest because life is simpler when viewed through the eyes of children. Is it not? You want to borrow one for a day, let me know. I've got four, okay? Yeah, you want to? Especially in September on my anniversary. <laughs> greatest because as I look into the eyes of a child, and I do it on a daily basis, and I have to sometimes pause in the busyness to do it, I rediscover the amazement that I somehow lost in the busyness of life. I, I pause and reflect now, whoa, whoa. This is amazing. The child is looking at a butterfly. You saw that picture of the butterfly on the screen towards the beginning of the service? Well, it's my boy holding a butterfly, a dead butterfly in his hand. It's dead. Yeah. And I've got to explain that, you know. Especially at first when they don't know about death. 
And so you rediscover all these lessons that you've taken for granted along. You're now learning them again through your children. It's greatest, the child is greatest because as we consider their willingness to trust and realize their dependence on Jesus, it keeps them humble. It should keep us humble. They're greatest because these children will be the ones to rise up and defend us when things really get heated in the future in this world. They're going to be the ones. And so, yes, I'm preparing soldiers. They don't march necessarily to the cadence of military style. They march the cadence of this is what it means to love Jesus. So today we're challenged individually, as families, as a church, to raise the greatest in the kingdom of God, the little ones around us. And if you think it's just applying to children, it's those who are weak in faith as well. All of our children all around us. So what I'm going to do at this time is, I know this is a child dedication Sabbath. You probably guessed that already. I didn't say that whole sermon just for that. I, I wanted to build it up to the idea that this is a beautiful thing that's taking place today. That a family is going to bring the little one to the front. That's going to basically follow the example that happened to Jesus when he was a child. That eventually Jesus himself did in front of his disciples. And basically Jesus pointed them to the child and said to Peter, remember? Feed my lambs. And so today is a challenge for each one of us. We do have little ones amongst us. We do have young people that are out in the community that we still need to reach and maybe bring in to the programs and things we have here. But at this time, we want to celebrate with this family that has had the addition of a little one. And so I'm going to invite May and her family to come forward, and Bert, uh, all your family who wants to come to the front here. I'm trying to see where May's at. <laughs> all right, go tap your shoulder. And when they come to the front here, I'll put it on the screen. Basically, we're going to have a special song that they've requested as they come forward. And I'm going to invite the elders to come forward after that song and to lay hands on, on this family. And we're going to have prayer for this family. And as we lay our hands on this family, I want to ask you as a congregation, as individuals and as families, to support in whatever way you can this family. And so when we pray that prayer, I'm hoping it'll be a prayer from your heart that, Lord, we're going to help support that family as well. We're going to help be the people you want us to be. So when that little child is seen running around this church, maybe, a little more energy than we have, then we want to influence them for Christ. As that child grows up in the faith, we want to influence that child for Christ. And so we're going to play this song here before we have our prayer time. It's entitled, this idea of dedicating the child to the Lord.
to encourage you guys, each one of us, to keep our relationship with the Lord strong, with our families as strong as it can be. Keep praying for your families if they're distant from the Lord. Until that day when we have this love at home that God established way at the beginning. We're all one family in the universe again. And to that effect, we're going to sing our closing song, Love at Home. It'll be up on the screen. Please feel free to stand and let's sing this song together. trusting, Lord, that you can guide us to go from this place and make our relationships, our homes, our family members that we care about, you can help us be the people you'd have us to be so there's love at our homes. And so, Lord, I pray for each situation here that if there's something that needs to be taken care of at home, you'll take care of that. And, Lord, if there's something that we need to praise you about, we can praise you, Lord, all the, all the days of our lives until we see you face to face. We look forward to that day when we'll be with you and our heavenly family, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.